Hey everyone, it is I, DB Spitzer, here with week four of Edgar Allan Poe, The Collected Works, The Raven Edition. So that's volume four. Yeah, that's that's what we got going on on Black Clock Audio Tales. Also, we have, uh, at some point in time, soon, we're going to have Ken Height talking about Edgar Allan Poe and some Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans reading some Poe for us. So here we are. Edgar Allan Poe, and of course, as always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't, 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 uh, don't, don't succumb to, to frostbite. Just make sure you wear slippers. It's a good plan, but, you know, if you're going outside in subarctic temperatures, wear more than bunny slippers. Just word of advice. BunnySlippers.com. Don't die of a exhaustion and exposure yeah also found out in clothing wear cool shirts from your favorite cool cult films of the 80s and 90s and some 70s stuff okay all right and also of course check out articulate warbling with zach ferguson look for him and dave's underground goat shenanigans on pgttcm.com and you can follow us on instagram you can follow us on facebook and you can follow us on twitter pgttcm.com black clock audio tales just search for those two things and you will find us out in the world on the internet all that fun stuff all right edgar Allan poe right now and remember hey sorry <laughs> remember if you want people to know about it share it with other people let other people know about it uh rate review give it us uh five stars on the amazon and uh, not amazon the itunes or stitcher or whatever uh, thank you so much recording by megan argo the devil in the belfry by Edgar Allan Poe. What o'clock is it? Old saying. Everybody knows, in a general way, that the finest place in the world is, or, alas, was, the Dutch borough of Vandervotimitis. Yet, as it lies some distance from any of the main roads, being at a somewhat out-of-the-way situation, there are perhaps very few of my readers who have ever paid it to visit. For the benefit of those who have not, therefore, it will be only proper that I should enter into some account of it, and this is, indeed, the more necessary, as with the hope of enlisting public sympathy in behalf of the inhabitants, I design here to give a history of the calamitous events which have so lately occurred within its limits. No one who knows me will doubt that the duty thus self-imposed will be executed to the best of my ability, with all that rigid impartiality, all that cautious examination into facts, and diligent collation of authorities, which should ever distinguish him who aspires to the title of historian. By the united aid of medals, manuscripts, and inscriptions, I am enabled to say, positively, that the borough of Vondervotimitis has existed from its origin in precisely the same condition which it at present preserves. Of the date of this origin, however, I grieve that I can only speak with that species of indefinite definiteness which mathematicians are, at times, forced to put up with in certain algebraic formulae. The date, I may thus say, in regard to the remoteness of its antiquity, cannot be less than any assignable quantity whatsoever. Touching the derivation of the name, Vondervotimitis, I confess myself, with sorrow equally at fault, among a multitude of opinions upon this delicate point, some acute, some learned, some sufficiently the reverse, I am able to select nothing which ought to be considered satisfactory. Perhaps the idea of Grogswig, nearly coincident with that of Krauterplenty, is to be cautiously preferred. It runs, 
Vonder what time it is. Vonder legodonder. What time it is. Quasi und bletzis. Bletzis obsol. Pro blitzen. This derivative, to say the truth, is still countenanced by some traces of the electric fluid evident on the summit of the steeple of the house of the town council. I do not choose, however, to commit myself on a theme of such importance, and must refer the reader, desirous of information, to the Oratiunclae de Rebus Praetor Veteris of Dundergutz. See also Blunderbuzzard de Derivationibus, pages 27 to 5010, folio, Gothic edition, red and black character, catchword and no cipher, wherein consult also marginal notes on the autograph of Stuffenpuff, with the sub-commentaries of Grunt and Guzzle. Notwithstanding the obscurity which thus envelops the date of the foundation of Vondervatimeters, and the derivation of its name, there can be no doubt, as I said before, that it has always existed as we find it at this epoch. The oldest man in the borough can remember not the slightest difference in the appearance of any portion of it, and, indeed, the very suggestion of such a possibility is considered an insult. The site of the village is in a perfectly circular valley, about a quarter of a mile in circumference, and entirely surrounded by gentle hills, over whose summit the people have never yet ventured to pass. For this they assign the very good reason, that they do not believe there is anything at all on the other side. Round the skirts of the valley, which is quite level and paved throughout with flat tiles, extends a continuous row of sixty little houses. These, having their backs on the hills, must look, of course, to the centre of the plain, which is just sixty yards from the front door of each dwelling. Every house has a small garden before it, with a circular path, a sundial, and twenty-four cabbages. The buildings themselves are so precisely alike that one can in no manner be distinguished from the other. Owing to the vast antiquity, the style of architecture is somewhat odd, but it is not for that reason the less strikingly picturesque. They are fashioned of hard-burned little bricks, red with black ends, so that the walls look like a chessboard upon a great scale. The gables are turned to the front, and there are cornices as big as all the rest of the house, over the eaves and over the main doors. The windows are narrow and deep, with very tiny panes and a great deal of sash. On the roof is a vast quantity of tiles with long curly ears. The woodwork throughout is of a dark hue, and there is much carving about it, but with a trifling variety of pattern, for, time out of mind, the carvers of Vondervatimeters have never been able to carve more than two objects, a timepiece and a cabbage. But these they do exceedingly well, and intersperse them with singular ingenuity, wherever they find room for the chisel. The dwellings are as much alike inside as out, and the furniture is all upon one plan. The floors are of square tiles, the chairs and tables of black-looking wood, with thin crooked legs and puppy feet. The mantelpieces are wide and high, and have not only timepieces and cabbages sculptured over the front, but a real timepiece, which makes a prodigious ticking, on the top in the middle, with a flowering pot containing a cabbage standing on each extremity by way of outrider. Between each cabbage and the timepiece, again, is a little china man having a large stomach with a great round hole in it, through which is seen the dial plate of a watch. The fireplaces are large and deep, with fierce crooked-looking fire-dogs. There is constantly a rousing fire, and a huge pot over it, full of sauerkraut and pork, to which the good woman of the house is always busy in attending. She is a little fat old lady, with blue eyes and a red face, and wears a huge cap like a sugar-loaf, ornamented with purple and yellow ribbons. Her dress is of orange-coloured linsey-woolsey, made very full behind and very short in the waist, and indeed very short in other respects, not reaching below the middle of her leg. This is somewhat thick, and so are her ankles, and she has a fine pair of green stockings to cover them. Her shoes, of pink leather, are fastened each with a bunch of yellow ribbons puckered up in the shape of a cabbage. 
In her left hand she has a little heavy Dutch watch. In her right she wields a ladle for the sauerkraut and pork. By her side there stands a fat tabby cat, with a gilt toy repeater tied to its tail, which the boys have there fastened by way of a quiz. The boys themselves are, all three of them, in the garden attending the pig. They are each two feet in height. They have three-cornered cocked hats, purple waistcoats reaching down to their thighs, buckskin knee breeches, red stockings, heavy shoes with big silver buckles, long surtout coats with large buttons of mother-of-pearl. Each, too, has a pipe in his mouth, and a little dumpy watch in his right hand. He takes a puff and a look, and then a look and a puff. The pig, which is corpulent and lazy, is occupied now in picking up the stray leaves that fall from the cabbages, and now in giving a kick behind at the gilt repeater, which the urchins have also tied to his tail in order to make him look as handsome as the cat. Right at the front door, in a high-backed leather-bottomed armchair, with crooked legs and puppy feet like the tables, is seated the old man of the house himself. He is an exceedingly puffy little old gentleman, with big circular eyes and a huge double chin. His dress resembles that of the boys, and I need say nothing further about it. All the difference is that his pipe is somewhat bigger than theirs, and he can make a greater smoke. Like them, he has a watch, but he carries his watch in his pocket. To say the truth, he has something of more importance than a watch to attend to, and what that is I shall presently explain. He sits with his right leg upon his left knee, wears a grave countenance, and always keeps one of his eyes, at least, resolutely bent upon a certain remarkable object in the centre of the plain. The object is situated in the steeple of the house of the town council. The town council are all very little, round, oily, intelligent men, with big saucer eyes and fat double chins, and have their coats much longer and their shoe-buckles much bigger than the ordinary inhabitants of Vondelotimeters. Since my sojourn in the borough, they have had several special meetings, and have adopted these three important resolutions. That it is wrong to alter the good old course of things, that there is nothing tolerable out of Vondelotimeters, and that we will stick by our clocks and our cabbages. Above the session-room of the council is the steeple, and in the steeple is the belfry, where exists, and has existed time out of mind, the pride and wonder of the village, the great clock of the borough of Vondelotimeters. And this is the object to which the eyes of the old gentlemen are turned, who sit in the leather-bottomed armchairs. The great clock has seven faces, one in each of the seven sides of the steeple, so that it can be readily seen from all quarters. Its faces are large and white, and its hands heavy and black. There is a belfryman whose sole duty is to attend to it, but this duty is the most perfect of sinecures, for the clock of Vondervatimitis has never yet known to have anything the matter with it. Until lately the best supposition of such a thing was considered heretical. From the remotest period of antiquity, to which the archives have reference, the hours have been regularly struck by the big bell, and indeed the case was just the same with all the other clocks and watches in the borough. Never was such a place for keeping the true time. When the large clapper thought proper to say twelve o'clock, all its obedient followers opened their throats simultaneously, and responded like a very echo. In short, the good burghers were fond of their sauerkraut, but then they were proud of their clocks. All people who hold sinecure offices are held in more or less respect, and as the belfryman of Vondervatimitis has the most perfect of sinecures, he is the most perfectly respected of any man in the world. He is the chief dignitary of the borough, and the very pigs look up to him with a sentiment of reverence. His coat-tail is very far longer, his pipe, his shoe-buckles, his eyes, and his stomach very far bigger than those of any other old gentleman in the village, and as to his chin it is not only double, but triple. 
I have thus painted the happy estate of wonder what time it is. Alas, that so fair a picture should ever experience a reverse. There has been long a saying among the wisest inhabitants, that no good can come from over the hills, and it really seemed that the words had in them something of the spirit of prophecy. It wanted five minutes of noon, on the day before yesterday, when there appeared a very odd-looking object on the summit of the ridge of the eastward. Such an occurrence, of course, attracted universal attention, and every little old gentleman who sat in a leather-bottomed armchair turned one of his eyes with a stare of dismay upon the phenomenon, still keeping the other upon the clock in the steeple. By the time that it wanted only three minutes to noon, the droll object in question was perceived to be a very diminutive foreign-looking young man. He descended the hills at a great rate, so that everybody had soon a good look at him. He was really the most finicky little personage that had ever been seen in Vondervartimeters. His countenance was of a dark snuff colour, and he had a long hooked nose, pea eyes, a wide mouth, and an excellent set of teeth, which latter he seemed anxious of displaying, as he was grinning from ear to ear. What with moustachios and whiskers, there was none of the rest of his face to be seen. His head was uncovered, and his hair neatly done up in papillots. His dress was a tight-fitting swallow-tailed black coat, from one of whose pockets dangled a vast length of white handkerchief. Black kerseymere knee-breeches, black stockings, and stumpy-looking pumps, with huge bunches of black satin ribbon for bows. Under one arm he carried a huge chapeau de bras, and under the other a fiddle nearly five times as big as himself. In his left hand was a gold snuff-box, from which, as he capered down the hill, cutting all manner of fantastic steps, he took snuff incessantly, with an air of the greatest possible self-satisfaction. God bless me, here was a sight for the honest burghers of Vondervartimetus. To speak plainly, the fellow had, in spite of his grinning, an audacious and sinister kind of face, and as he curvetted right into the village, the old stumpy appearance of his pumps excited no little suspicion, and many a burgher who beheld him that day would have given a trifle for a peep beneath the white cambric handkerchief which hung so obtrusively from the pocket of his swallow-tailed coat. But what mainly occasioned a righteous indignation was, that the scoundrelly popinjay, while he cut a fandango here and a willig there, did not seem to have the remotest idea in the world of such a thing as keeping time in his steps. The good people of the borough had scarcely a chance, however, to get their eyes thoroughly upon, when, just as it wanted half a minute of noon, the rascal bounced, as I say, right into the midst of them, gave a chasse here and a balancé there, and then, after a pirouette and a pas de zephyr, pigeon-winged himself right up into the belfry of the house of the town council, where the wonder-stricken belfryman sat smoking in a state of dignity and dismay. But the little chap seized him at once by the nose, gave it a swing and a pull, clapped the big chapeau de bras upon his head, knocked it down over his eyes and mouth, and then, lifting up the big fiddle, beat him with it so long and so soundly, that what with the belfryman being so fat and the fiddle being so hollow, you would have sworn that there was a regiment of double bass drummers all beating the devil's tattoo up in the belfry of the steeple of Vondervartimeters. There is no knowing to what desperate act of vengeance this unprincipled attack might have aroused the inhabitants, but for the important fact that it now wanted only half a second of noon. The bell was about to strike, and it was a matter of absolute and pre-eminent necessity that everybody should look well at his watch. It was evident, however, that just at this moment the fellow in the steeple was doing something that he had no business to do with the clock. But as it now began to strike, nobody had any time to attend to his manoeuvres, for they had all to count the strokes of the bell as it sounded. One, said the clock. Von, 
echoed every little old gentleman in every leather-bottomed armchair in Vondervotimitis. Von said his watch also, Von said the watch of his frau, and Von said the watches of the boys, and the little gilt repeaters on the tails of the cat and pig. Two continued the bell, and do repeated all the repeaters. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, said the bell. Three, four, five, six, seven, acht, neun, ten, answered the others. Eleven, said the big one. Eleven, assented the little ones. Twelve, said the bell. Twelve, they replied, perfectly satisfied, and dropping their voices. And twelve it is, said all the little old gentlemen, putting up their watches. But the big bell had not done with them yet. Thirteen, said he. De Taufel, gasped the little old gentlemen, turning pale, dropping their pipes, and putting down all their right legs from over their left knees. De Taufel, groaned they. Dirteen, dirteen, mein Gott, it is dirteen o'clock. Why attempt to describe the terrible scene which ensued? All von der Vortimites flew at once into a lamentable state of uproar. What is come to mine belly? roared all the boys. I've been hungry for this hour. What is come to mine kraut? screamed all the vrows. It has been done to rags for this hour. What is come to mine pipe? swore all the little old gentlemen. Dunder and Blitzen, it has been smoked out for this hour. And they filled them up again in a great rage and sinking back into their armchairs, puffed away so fast and so fiercely that the whole valley was immediately filled with impenetrable smoke. Meantime the cabbages all turned very red in the face, and it seemed as if old Nick himself had taken possession of everything in the shape of a timepiece. The clocks carved upon the furniture took to dancing as if bewitched, while those upon the mantelpieces could scarcely contain themselves for fury, and kept such a continual striking of thirteen, and such a frisking and wriggling of their pendulums as was really horrible to see. But worse than all, neither the cats nor the pigs could put up any longer with the behaviour of the little repeaters tied to their tails, and resented it by scampering all over the place, scratching and poking, and squeaking and screeching, and catwalling and squalling, and flying into the faces and running under the petticoats of the people, and creating altogether the most abominable din and confusion which it is possible for a reasonable person to conceive and to make matters still more distressing, the rascally little scapegrace in the steeple was evidently exerting himself to the utmost. Every now and then one might catch a glimpse of the scoundrel through the smoke. There he sat in the belfry, upon the belfryman, who was lying flat upon his back. In his teeth the villain held the bell-rope, which he kept jerking about with his head, raising such a clatter that my ears ring again even to think of it. On his lap lay the big fiddle, at which he was scraping, out of all time and tune, with both hands, making a great show, the nincompoop, of playing Judy O'Flanagan and Paddy O'Rafferty. Affairs being thus miserably situated, I left the place in disgust, and now appeal for aid to all lovers of correct time and fine kraut. Let us proceed in a body to the borough, and restore the ancient order of things in Vondervotimeters, by ejecting that little fellow from the steeple. End of section one. Recording by Arnie Horton. Lionizing by Edgar Allan Poe. All people went upon their ten toes in wild wonderment. Bishop Hall's satires. I am, that is to say, I was a great man, but I am neither the author 
of Junius nor the man in the mask. For my name, I believe, is Robert Jones, and I was born somewhere in the city of Fum Fudge. The first action of my life was the taking hold of my nose with both hands. My mother saw this and called me a genius. My father wept for joy and presented me with a treatise on nosology. This I mastered before I was breached. I now began to feel my way in the science, and soon came to understand that, provided a man had a nose sufficiently conspicuous, he might, by merely following it, arrive at a lionship. But my attention was not confined to theories alone. Every morning I gave my proboscis a couple of pulls and swallowed a half dozen of drams. When I came of age, my father asked me one day if I would step with him into his study. My son, said he, when we were seated, what is the chief end of your existence? My father, I answered, it is the study of nosology. And what, Robert, he inquired, is nosology? Sir, I said, it is the science of noses. And can you tell me, he demanded, what is the meaning of a nose? A nose, my father, I replied, greatly softened, has been variously defined by about a thousand different authors. Here I pulled out my watch. It is now noon or thereabouts. We shall have time enough to get through with them all before midnight. To commence then, the nose, according to Bartholinus, is that protuberance, that bump, that excrescence that will do robert interrupted the good old gentleman i am thunderstruck at the extent of your information i am positively upon my soul here he closed his eyes and placed his hand upon his heart come here here he took me by the arm your education may now be considered as finished it is high time you should scuffle for yourself and you cannot do a better thing than merely follow your nose so 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 here he kicked me downstairs and out of the door so get out of my house and god bless you as i felt within me the divine afflatus i considered this accident rather fortunate than otherwise i resolved to be guided by the paternal advice i determined to follow my nose I gave it a pull or two upon the spot, and wrote a pamphlet on nosology forthwith. All foam fudge was in an uproar. Wonderful genius, said the quarterly. Superb physiologist, said the Westminster. Clever fellow, said the foreign. Fine writer, said the Edinburgh. Profound thinker, said the Dublin. Great man, said Bentley. Divine soul said Fraser. One of us, said Blackwood. Who can he be, said Mrs. Basblue. What can he be, said big Miss Basblue. Where can he be, said little Miss Basblue. But I pay these people no attention whatever. I just stepped into the shop of an artist. The Duchess of Bless My Soul was sitting for her portrait. 
the marquis of so-and-so was holding the duchess's poodle the earl of this and that was flirting with her salts and his royal highness of touch me not was leaning upon the back of her chair i approached the artist and turned up my nose oh beautiful sighed her grace oh my lisped the marquis oh shocking groaned the earl oh abominable growled his royal highness what will you take for it asked the artist for his nose shouted her grace a thousand pounds said i sitting down a thousand pounds inquired the artist musingly a thousand pounds said i beautiful said he entranced a thousand pounds said i do you warrant it he asked turning the nose to the light i do said i blowing it well it is quite original he inquired touching it with reverence humph said i twisting it to one side has no copy been taken he demanded surveying it through a microscope none said i turning it up admirable he ejaculated thrown quite off his guard by the beauty of the maneuver a thousand pounds said i a thousand pounds said he precisely said i a thousand pounds said he just so said i you shall have them said he what a piece of virtue so he drew me a check upon the spot and took a sketch of my nose i engaged rooms in germain street and sent her majesty the ninety-ninth edition of the nosology with a portrait of the proboscis that sad little rake the prince of wales invited me to dinner we were all lions and recherches there was a modern platonist he quoted porphyry iamblichus plotinus proclus hierocles maximus tyrius and syrianus there was a human perfectibility man he quoted turgot price priestley condorcet de stael and the ambitious student in ill health there was sir positive paradox he observed that all fools were philosophers and that all philosophers were fools there was aestheticus ethics he spoke of fire unity and atoms bipart and pre-existent soul affinity and discord primitive intelligence and homomeria there was theologus theology he talked of isubius and Arrhenius, heresy in the council of nice Puseism and consubstantialism homoousius and homoousios there was fricassee from the rocher de cancal he mentioned meriton of red tongue cauliflowers with velote sauce veal a la saint menehold marinade a la saint florentine and orange jellies and mosaiques there was bibulous old bumper he touched upon lator and mark brunen upon Mousseau and chapertine upon richborg and saint george upon halbrion 
Leonville and Medoc, upon Barak and Preignac, upon Grave, upon Sautern, upon Lafitte, and upon Saint Perret. He shook his head at Clos de Vogot, and told with his eyes shut the difference between Sherry and Amontillado. There was Signor Tinton Tintino from Florence. He discoursed of Ciampui, Arpino, Arpaccio, and Argostino, of the gloom of Caravaggio, of the amenity of Albano, of the colors of Titian, of the frows of Rubens, and of the waggeries of John Steen. There was the president of the Fum Fudge University. He was of opinion that the moon was called Bendis in Thrace, Bubastis in Egypt, Dion in Rome, and Artemis in Greece. There was a Grand Turk from Stambul. He could not help thinking that the angels were horses, cocks, and bulls, that somebody in the sixth heaven had seventy thousand heads, and that the earth was supported by a sky-blue cow with an incalculable number of green horns. There was Delphinus Polyglot. He told us what had become of the eighty-three lost tragedies of Isichelus, of the fifty-four orations of Isaeus, of the three hundred and ninety-one speeches of Lysias, of the hundred and eighty treaties of Theophrastus, of the eighth book of the conic sections of Apollonius, of Pindar's hymns and dithrambics, and of the five and forty tragedies of Homer Jr. There was Ferdinand Fitz Fossilus Feldspar. He informed us all about internal fires and tertiary formations, about aeriforms, fluidiforms, and solidiforms, about quartz and marl, about schist and shoral, about gypsum and trap, about talc and calc, about blend and horn blend, about mica slate and pudding stone, about cyanite and lepidolite, about hematite and tremolite, about antimony and chalcedony, about manganese and whatever you please. There was myself, I spoke of myself, of myself, of myself, of myself, of nosology, of my pamphlet, and of myself. I turned up my nose, and I spoke of myself. Marvelous clever man, said the prince. Superb, said his guests, and next morning her grace of bless my soul paid me a visit. Will you go to Almac's pretty creature, said she, tapping me under the chin. Upon honor, said I. Nose and all, she asked. As I live, I replied. Here then is a card, my life. Shall I say you will be there, dear Duchess, with all my heart? Pshaw, no, but with all your nose. Every bit of it, my love, said I. So I gave it a twist or two and found myself at Almack's. The rooms were crowded to suffocation. 
He is coming, said somebody on the staircase. He is coming, said somebody farther up. He is coming, said somebody farther still. He is come, exclaimed the Duchess. He is come, the little love. And, seizing me firmly by both hands, she kissed me thrice upon the nose. A marked sensation immediately ensued. Diavolo, cried Count Capricornuti. Dios guarda, muttered Don Stiletto. Mille toneres, ejaculated the Prince de Granoil. Toussaint Tufel, growled the elector of Bludenhoff. It was not to be borne. I grew angry. I turned short upon Bludenhoff. Sir, said I to him, you are a baboon. Sir, he replied after a pause, Donner and Blitzen. This was all that could be desired. We exchanged cards. At chalk form the next morning, I shot off his nose and then called upon my friends. Bete, said the first. Fool, said the second. Dolt, said the third. Ass, said the fourth. Ninny, said the fifth. Noodle, said the sixth. Be off, said the seventh. At all this I felt mortified, and so called upon my father. Father, I asked, what is the chief end of my existence? My son, he replied, it is still the study of nosology. But in hitting the elector upon the nose, you have overshot your mark. You have a fine nose, it is true, but then Bludenhoff has none. You are damned, and he has become the hero of the day. I grant you that in Fum Fudge the greatness of a lion is in proportion to the size of his proboscis. But, good heavens, there is no competing with a lion who has no proboscis at all. End of section 2 Recording by Patty Cunningham Xing a paragraph by Edgar Allan Poe. As it is well known that the wise men came from the east, and as Mr. Touch and Go Bullethead came from the east, it follows that Mr. Bullethead was a wise man. And if collateral proof of the matter be needed, here we have it. Mr. B was an editor. Irascibility was his sole foible for in fact the obstinacy of which men accused him was anything but his foible, since he justly considered it his forte. It was his strong point, his virtue, and it would have required all the logic of a Brownson to convince him that it was anything else. I have shown that touch-and-go Bullethead was a wise man, and the only occasion on which he did not prove infallible was when, abandoning that legitimate home for all wise men, the East, he migrated to the city of Alexander the Great Annopolis, or some place of a similar title, out West. I must do him the justice to say, however, that when he made up his mind finally to settle in that town, it was under the impression that no newspaper, and consequently no editor, existed in that particular section of the country. In establishing the teapot, he expected to have the field all to himself. I feel confident he would never have dreamed of taking up his residence in Alexander the Great Annopolis had he been aware that, in Alexander the Great Annopolis, there lived a gentleman named John Smith, if I rightly remember, 
who for many years had there quietly grown fat in editing and publishing the Alexander the Great Annopolis Gazette. It was solely, therefore, on account of having been misinformed, that Mr. Bullethead found himself in Alex, suppose we call it Nopolis, for short. But as he did find himself there, he determined to keep up his character for obst for firmness, and remain. So remain he did, and he did more. He unpacked his press, type, etc., etc., rented an office exactly opposite to that of the Gazette, and on the third morning after his arrival issued the first number of the Alexant, that is to say, of the Nopolis Teapot. As nearly as I can recollect, this was the name of the new paper. The leading article, I must admit, was brilliant, not to say severe. It was especially bitter about things in general, and as for the editor of the Gazette, he was torn all to pieces in particular. Some of Bullethead's remarks were really so fiery that I have always since that time been forced to look upon John Smith, who is still alive, in the light of a salamander. I cannot pretend to give all the teapot's paragraphs verbatim, but one of them runs thus. Oh, yes. Oh, we perceive. Oh, no doubt. The editor over the way is a genius. Oh, my. Oh, goodness gracious. What is this world coming to? Oh, tempora! Oh, Moses! A philippic at once so caustic and so classical alighted like a bombshell among the hitherto peaceful citizens of Nopolis. Groups of excited individuals gathered at the corners of the streets. Everyone awaited, with heartfelt anxiety, the reply of the dignified Smith. Next morning it appeared as follows. We quote from the teapot of yesterday the subjoined paragraph. Oh, yes. Oh, we perceive. Oh, no doubt. Oh, my. Oh, goodness. Oh, tempora. Oh, Moses. Why, the fellow is all oh. That accounts for his reasoning in a circle, and explains why there is neither beginning nor end to him, nor anything he says. We really do not believe the vagabond can write a word that hasn't an O in it. Wonder if this owing is a habit of his. By the by, he came away from down east in a great hurry. Wonder if he owes as much there as he does here. Oh, it is pitiful. The indignation of Mr. Bullethead at these scandalous insinuations I shall not attempt to describe. On the eel-skinning principle, however, he did not seem to be so much incensed at the attack upon his integrity as one might have imagined. It was the sneer at his style that drove him to desperation. What? He, touch-and-go bullet-head, not able to write a word without an O in it? He would soon let the jackanape see that he was mistaken. Yes, he would let him see how much he was mistaken, the puppy. He, touch-and-go bullet-head, of frog-pondium, would let Mr. John Smith perceive that he, bullet-head, could indict, if it so pleased him, a whole paragraph, aye, a whole article, in which that contemptible vowel should not once not even once make its appearance. But no, that would be yielding a point to the said John Smith. He, Bullethead, would make no alteration in his style to suit the caprices of any Mr. Smith in Christendom. Perish so vile a thought. The O forever. He would persist in the O. He would be as O-y as O-y could be. 
burning with the chivalry of his determination the great touch-and-go in the next teapot came out merely with this simple but resolute paragraph in reference to this unhappy affair the editor of the teapot has the honor of advising the editor of the gazette that he the teapot will take an opportunity in tomorrow morning's paper of convincing him the gazette that he the teapot both can and will be his own master as regards to style he the teapot intending to show him the gazette the supreme and indeed the withering contempt with which the criticism of him the gazette inspires the independent bosom of him the teapot by composing for the especial gratification of him the gazette a leading article of some extent in which the beautiful vowel the emblem of eternity yet so offensive to the hyper-exquisite delicacy of him the gazette shall most certainly not be avoided by his the gazette's most obedient humble servant the teapot so much for buckingham in fulfilment of the awful threat thus darkly intimated rather than decidedly enunciated the great bullet-head turning a deaf ear to all entreaties for copy and simply requesting his foreman to go to the devil when he the foreman assured him the teapot that it was high time to go to press turning a deaf ear to everything i say the great bullet-head sat up until daybreak consuming the midnight oil and absorbed in the composition of the really unparalleled paragraph which follows so ho john how now told you so you know don't crow another time before you're out of the woods does your mother know you're out oh no no so go home at once now john to your odious old woods of concord go home to your woods old owl go you won't oh po po don't do so you've got to go you know so go at once and don't go slow for nobody owns you here you know oh john john if you don't go you're no homo no you're only a fowl an owl a cow a sow a doll a pall a poor old good-for-nothing to nobody log dog hog or frog come out of a conquered bog cool now cool do be cool you fool none of your crowing old cock don't frown so don't don't hollow nor howl nor growl nor bow wow wow good lord john how you do look told you so you know but stop rolling your goose of an old pall about so and go and drown your sorrows in a bowl exhausted very naturally by so stupendous an effort the great touch-and-go could attend to nothing farther that night firmly composedly yet with an air of conscious power he handed his missive to the devil-in-waiting and then walking leisurely home retired with ineffable dignity to bed meantime the devil to whom the copy was entrusted ran upstairs to his case in an unutterable hurry and forthwith made a commencement at setting the missive up in the first place of course as the opening word was so he made a plunge into the capital s hole and came out in triumph with the capital s elated by this success he immediately threw himself upon the little o box with a blindfold impetuosity but who shall describe his horror when his fingers came up without the anticipated letter in their clutch 
who shall paint his astonishment and rage at perceiving as he rubbed his knuckles that he had been only thumping them to no purpose against the bottom of an empty box not a single little o was in the little o hole and glancing fearfully at the capital o partition he found that to his extreme terror in a precisely similar predicament awe-stricken his first impulse was to rush to the foreman sir he said gasping for breath i can't never set up nothin without no o's what do you mean by that growled the foreman who was in a very ill humor at being kept so late why sir there bean't an o in the office neither a biggin nor a littlin what what the d l has become of all that were in the case i don't know sir said the boy but one of them ere gazette devils has been prowlin about here all night and i spect he's gone and cabbaged em every one dod rot him i haven't a doubt of it replied the foreman getting purple with rage but i tell you what you do bob there's a good boy you go over the first chance you get and hook every one of their eyes and in them they're izzards jist so replied bob with a wink and a frown i'll be into em i'll let em know a thing or two but in de meantime that ere paragraph must go in to-night you know else there'll be the dub to pay and and not a bit of pitch hot interrupted the foreman with a deep sigh and an emphasis on the bit is it a long paragraph bob shouldn't call it a weary long paragraph said bob ah oh, well then do the best you can with it we must get to press said the foreman who was over his head and ears in work just stick in some other letter for o nobody's going to read the fellow's trash anyhow very well replied bob here goes it and off he hurried to his case muttering as he went considerable vel them air expressions particular for a man as doesn't swar so as to gouge out all their eyes eh and d and all their gizzards vel this here's the chap as is just able for to do it the fact is that although bob was but twelve years old and four feet high he was equal to any amount of fight in a small way the exigency here described is by no means of rare occurrence in printing offices and i cannot tell how to account for it but the fact is indisputable that when the exigency does occur it almost always happens that x is adopted as a substitute for the letter deficient the true reason perhaps is that x is rather the most superabundant letter in the cases or at least it was so in the old times long enough to render the substitution in question an habitual thing with printers as for bob he would have considered it heretical to employ any other character in a case of this kind than the x to which he had been accustomed i shall have to x this ere paragraph said he to himself as he read it over in astonishment but it's just about the awfulest owey paragraph i ever did see so x it he did unflinchingly and to press it went xed next morning the population of nopolis were taken all aback by reading in the teapot the following extraordinary leader sxhx jxhn hxw and xw txld yxusx yxuk and xw narrator's note as illustrated the entire article has had the letter o replaced by the letter x which makes it unpronounceable the remainder of the article will be read in plain english End narrator's note. 
so ho john how now told you so you know don't crow another time before you're out of the woods does your mother know you're out oh no no so go home at once now john to your odious old woods of concord go home to your woods old owl go you won't oh po po don't do so you've got to go you know so go at once and don't go slow for nobody owns you here you know oh john john if you don't go you're no homo no you're only a fowl an owl a cow a sow a doll a poll a poor old good-for-nothing-to-nobody log dog hog or frog come out of a conquered bog cool now cool do be cool you fool none of your crowing old cock don't frown so don't don't hollow nor howl nor growl nor bow wow wow good lord john how you do look told you so you know but stop rolling your goose of an old pall about so and go and drown your sorrows in a bowl the uproar occasioned by this mystical and cabalistic article is not to be conceived the first definite idea entertained by the populace was that some diabolical treason lay concealed in the hieroglyphics and there was a general rush to bullethead's residence for the purpose of riding him on a rail but that gentleman was nowhere to be found he had vanished no one could tell how and not even the ghost of him has ever been seen since unable to discover its legitimate object the popular fury at length subsided leaving behind it by way of sediment quite a medley of opinion about this unhappy affair one gentleman thought the whole an excellent joke another said that indeed bullethead had shown much exuberance of fancy a third admitted him eccentric but no more a fourth could only suppose it the yankees designed to express in a general way his exasperation say rather to set an example to posterity suggested a fifth that bullethead had been driven to an extremity was clear to all and in fact since that editor could not be found there was some talk about lynching the other one the more common conclusion however was that the affair was simply extraordinary and inexplicable even the town mathematician confessed that he could make nothing of so dark a problem x everybody knew was an unknown quantity but in this case as he properly observed there was an unknown quantity of x the opinion of bob the devil who kept dark about having his xed the paragraph did not meet with so much attention as i think it deserved although it was very openly and very fearlessly expressed key said that for his part he had no doubt about the matter at all that it was a clear case that mr bullethead never could be persuaded for to drink like other folks but was continually a sfigging o oh, that ere blessed xxx ale and as a natural consequence it just puffed him up savage and made him x cross in the extreme end of section three recording by patty cunningham metzingerstein of edgar allan poe Pestis aram vivas morianus tua mors ero. Martin Luther. 
Horror and fatality have been stalking abroad in all ages. Why then give a date to this story I have to tell? Let it suffice to say that at the period of which I speak, there existed, in the interior of Hungary, a settled, although hidden belief in the doctrines of the metempsychosis, of the doctrines themselves, that is, of their falsity, or of their probability, I say nothing. I assert, however, that much of our incredulity, as la Bruyere says, of our unhappiness, vient de ne pouvoir être seul. But there are some points in the Hungarian superstition which were fast verging to absurdity. They, the Hungarians, differed very essentially from their Eastern authorities. For example, the soul, said the former, I give the words of an acute and intelligent Parisian. Ne demeure qu'on soit foi dans un corps sensible. Au reste, un cheval, un chien, un homme même, ne la ressemblance pour tangible de sa anima. The families of Berlifitzing and Metzengerstein had been at variance for centuries. Never before were two houses so illustrious, mutually embittered by hostility so deadly. The origin of this enmity seems to be found in the words of an ancient prophecy. A lofty name shall have a fearful fall when, as the rider over his horse, the mortality of Metzengerstein shall triumph over the immortality of Berlifitzing. To be sure, the words themselves had little or no meaning, but more trivial causes had given rise, and that no long while ago, to consequences equally eventful. Besides, the estates, which were contiguous, had long exercised a rival influence in the affairs of a busy government. Moreover, near neighbors are seldom friends, and the inhabitants of the castle Berlifitzing might look from their lofty buttresses into the very windows of the palace Metzengerstein. Least of all had the more than feudal magnificence thus discovered a tendency to allay the irritable feelings of the less ancient and less wealthy Berlifitzings. What wonder then that the words, however silly, of that ancient prediction should have succeeded in setting and keeping at variance two families already predisposed to quarrel. By every instigation of hereditary jealousy, the prophecy seemed to imply, if it implied anything, a final triumph on the part of the already more powerful house, and was of course remembered with the more bitter animosity by the weaker and less influential. Wilhelm, Count Berlifitzing, although loftily descended, was at the epoch of this narrative, an infirm and doting old man, remarkable for nothing but an inordinate and inveterate personal antipathy to the family of his rival, and so passionate a love of horses and of hunting, that neither bodily infirmity, great age, nor mental incapacity prevented his daily participation in the dangers of the chase. Frederick, Baron Metzengerstein, was, on the other hand, not yet of age. His father, the minister G, died young. His mother, the Lady Mary, followed him quickly after. 
Frederick was, at the time, in his fifteenth year. In a city, fifteen years are no longer period. A child may still be a child in his third lustrum. But in a wilderness, in so magnificent a wilderness as that old principality, fifteen years have a far deeper meaning. From some peculiar circumstances attending the administration of his father, the young baron, at the decease of the former, entered immediately upon his vast possessions. Such estates were seldom held before by a nobleman of Hungary. His castles were without number. The chief in point of splendor and extent was the Chateau Metzengerstein. The boundary line of his domains was never clearly defined, but his principal park embraced a circuit of fifty miles. Upon the succession of a proprietor so young, with a character so well known, to a fortune so unparalleled, little speculation was afloat in regard to his probable course of conduct. And indeed, for the space of three days, the behavior of the heir out-heroded Herod, and fairly surpassed the expectations of his most enthusiastic admirers. Shameful debaucheries, flagrant treacheries, unheard of atrocities, gave his trembling vassals quickly to understand that no servile submission on their part, no punctilios of conscience on his own, were thenceforward to prove any security against the remorseless fangs of a petty Caligula. On the night of the fourth day, the stables of the castle Berlifitzing were discovered to be on fire, and the unanimous opinion of the neighborhood added the crime of the incendiary to the already hideous list of the baron's misdemeanors and enormities. But during the tumult occasioned by this occurrence, the young nobleman himself sat apparently buried in meditation, in a vast and desolate upper apartment of the family palace of Metzengerstein. The rich, although faded tapestry hangings which swung gloomily upon the walls, represented the shadowy and majestic form of a thousand illustrious ancestors. Here, rich ermined priests and pontifical dignitaries, familiarly seated with the autocrat and the sovereign, put a veto on the wishes of a temporal king, or restrained the fiat of papal supremacy, the rebellious scepter of the arch-enemy. There, the dark, tall statures of the princes Metzengerstein, their muscular war-coursers plunging over the carcasses of fallen foes, startled the steadiest nerves with their vigorous expression. And here, again, the voluptuous and swan-like figures of the dames of days gone by floated away in the mazes of an unreal dance to the strains of imaginary melody. But as the baron listened, or affected to listen, to the gradually increasing uproar in the stables of Berlifitzing, or perhaps pondered upon some more novel, some more decided act of audacity, his eyes became unwittingly riveted to the figure of an enormous and unnaturally colored horse, represented in the tapestry as belonging to a Saracen ancestor of the family of his rival. The horse itself, in the foreground of the design, stood motionless and statue-like, while farther back its discomfited rider perished by the dagger of a Metzingerstein. On Frederick's lip arose a fiendish expression, as he became aware of the direction which his glance had, without his consciousness, assumed. Yet he did not remove it, 
On the contrary, he could by no means account for the overwhelming anxiety which appeared falling like a pall upon his senses. It was with difficulty that he reconciled his dreamy and incoherent feelings with the certainty of being awake. The longer he gazed, the more absorbing became the spell, the more impossible did it appear that he could ever withdraw his glance from the fascination of that tapestry. But the tumult, without becoming suddenly more violent, with a compulsory exertion he diverted his attention to the glare of ruddy light thrown full by the flaming stables upon the windows of the apartment. The action, however, was but momentary. His gaze returned mechanically to the wall. To his extreme horror and astonishment, the head of the gigantic steed had, in the meantime, altered its position. The neck of the animal, before arched, as if in compassion over the prostrate body of its lord, was now extended at full length in the direction of the baron. The eyes, before invisible, now wore an energetic and human expression, while they gleamed with a fiery and unusual red and the distended lips of the apparently enraged horse left in full view his gigantic and disgusting teeth. Stupefied with terror, the young nobleman tottered to the door. As he threw it open, a flash of red light streaming far into the chamber flung his shadow with a clear outline against the quivering tapestry, and he shuddered to perceive that shadow as he staggered a while upon the threshold assuming the exact position and precisely filling up the contour of the relentless and triumphant murderer of the Saracen Berlifitzing. To lighten the depression of his spirits, the Baron hurried into the open air. At the principal gate of the palace, he encountered three equerries. With much difficulty, and at the imminent peril of their lives, they were restraining the convulsive plunges of a gigantic and fiery-colored horse. Whose horse? Where did you get him? demanded the youth in a querulous and husky tone of voice as he became instantly aware that the mysterious steed in the tapestried chamber was the very counterpart of the furious animal before his eyes. Here is your own property, sire, replied one of the equerries. At least he is claimed by no other owner. We caught him flying, all smoking and foaming with rage from the burning stables of the castle Berlifitzing. Supposing him to have belonged to the old count's stud of foreign horses, we led him back as an astray. But the grooms there disclaim any title to the creature, which is strange, since he bears evident marks of having made a narrow escape from the flames. The letters WVB are also branded very distinctly on his forehead, interrupted a second equerry. I suppose them, of course, to be the initials of Wilhelm von Berlifitzing, but all at the castle are positive in denying any knowledge of the horse. Extremely singular, said the young baron with a musing air, and apparently unconscious of the meaning of his words. He is, as you say, a remarkable horse, a prodigious horse, although, as you very justly observe, of a suspicious and untractable character. Let him be mine, however, he added after a pause. Perhaps a rider like Frederick of Metzingerstein may tame even the devil from the stables of Berlifitzing. You are mistaken, my lord. The horse, as I think we mentioned, is not from the stables of the Count. If such had been the case, we know our duty better than to bring him into the presence of a noble of your family. True, observed the Baron dryly, 
and at that instant a page of the bedchamber came from the palace with a heightened color and a precipitate step. He whispered into his master's ear an account of the sudden disappearance of a small portion of the tapestry in an apartment which he designated, entering at the same time into particulars of a minute and circumstantial character. But from the low tone of voice in which these latter were communicated, nothing escaped to gratify the excited curiosity of the equerries. The young Frederick, during the conference, seemed agitated by a variety of emotions. He soon, however, recovered his composure, and an expression of determined malignancy settled upon his countenance, as he gave peremptory orders that a certain chamber should be immediately locked up, and the key placed in his own possession. "'Have you heard of the unhappy death of the old hunter Belifitzing?' said one of the vassals to the baron, as, after the departure of the page, the huge steed which that nobleman had adopted as his own plunged and curveted with redoubled fury down the long avenue which extended from the chateau to the stables of Metzingerstein. No, said the baron, turning abruptly toward the speaker. Dead, you say? It is true, my lord, and to a noble of your name will be, I imagine, no unwelcome intelligence. A rapid smile shot over the countenance of the listener. How died he? In his rash exertions to rescue a favorite portion of his hunting stud, he has himself perished miserably in the flames. Indeed, ejaculated the baron, as if slowly and deliberately impressed with the truth of some exciting idea. Indeed, repeated the vassal. Shocking, said the youth calmly, and turned quietly into the chateau. From this date, a marked alteration took place in the outward demeanor of the dissolute young Baron Frederick von Metzengerstein. Indeed, his behavior disappointed every expectation, and proved little in accordance with the views of many a maneuvering mamma, while his habits and manner, still less than formerly, offered anything congenial with those of the neighboring aristocracy. He was never to be seen beyond the limits of his own domain, and in this wide and social world was utterly companionless, unless, indeed, that unnatural, impetuous, and fiery-colored horse which he henceforward continually bestrode, had any mysterious right to the title of his friend. Numerous invitations on the part of the neighborhood for a long time, however, periodically came in. Will the baron honor our festivals with his presence? Will the baron join us in a hunting of the boar? Metzengerstein does not hunt. Metzengerstein will not attend, were the haughty and laconic answers. These repeated insults were not to be endured by an imperious nobility. Such invitations became less cordial, less frequent. In time, they ceased altogether. The widow of the unfortunate Count Berlifitzing was even heard to express a hope that the baron might be at home when he did not wish to be at home, since he disdained the company of his equals, and ride when he did not wish to ride, since he preferred the society of a horse. This was, to be sure, a very silly explosion of hereditary pique, and merely proved how singularly unmeaning our sayings are apt to become when we desire to be unusually energetic. The charitable, nonetheless, attributed the alteration in the conduct of the young nobleman to the natural sorrow of a son for the untimely loss of his parents, forgetting, however, his atrocious and reckless behavior during the short period immediately succeeding that bereavement. 
Some there were, indeed, who suggested a too haughty idea of self-consequence and dignity. Others, again, among them may be mentioned the family physician, did not hesitate in speaking of morbid melancholy and hereditary ill health, while dark hints of more equivocal nature were a current among the multitude. Indeed, the Baron's perverse attachment to his lately acquired charger, an attachment which seemed to attain new strength from every fresh example of the animal's ferocious and demon-like propensities, at length became, in the eyes of all reasonable men, a hideous and unnatural fervor. In the glare of noon, at the dead hour of night, in sickness or in health, in calm or in tempest, the young Metzengerstein seemed riveted to the saddle of that colossal horse whose intractable audacities so well accorded with his own spirit. There were circumstances, moreover, which coupled with late events gave an unearthly and portentous character to the mania of the rider and to the capabilities of the steed. The space passed over in a single leap had been accurately measured and was found to exceed, by an astounding difference, the wildest expectations of the most imaginative. The Baron, besides, had no particular name for the animal, although all the rest of his collection were distinguished by characteristic appellations. His stable, too, was appointed at a distance from the rest, and with regard to grooming and other necessary offices, none but the owner in person had ventured to officiate or even to enter the enclosure of that particular stall. It was also to be observed that although the three grooms who had caught the steed as he fled from the conflagration at Berlifitzing had succeeded in arresting his course by means of a chain bridle and noose, yet no one of the three could with any certainty affirm that he had, during the dangerous struggle or at any period thereafter, actually placed his hand upon the body of the beast. Instances of peculiar intelligence in the demeanor of a noble and high-spirited horse are not to be supposed capable of exciting unreasonable attention, especially among men who, daily trained to the labors of the chase, might appear well acquainted with the sagacity of a horse. But there were certain circumstances which intruded themselves per force upon the most skeptical and phlegmatic and it is said there were times when the animal caused the gaping crowd who stood around to recoil in horror from the deep and impressive meaning of his terrible stamp, times when the young Metzengerstein turned pale and shrank away from the rapid and searching expression of his earnest and human-looking eye. Among all the retinue of the Baron, however, none were found to doubt the ardor of that extraordinary affection which existed on the part of the young nobleman for the fiery qualities of his horse. At least none but an insignificant and misshapen little page, whose deformities were in everybody's way, and whose opinions were of the least possible importance. He, if his ideas are worth mentioning at all, had the effrontery to assert that his master never vaulted into the saddle without an unaccountable and almost imperceptible shudder, and that upon his return from every long-continued and habitual ride an expression of triumphant malignity distorted every muscle in his countenance. One tempestuous night, Metzengerstein, awaking from a heavy slumber, descended like a maniac from his chamber and mounting in hot haste, bounded away into the mazes of the forest. An occurrence so common attracted no particular attention, 
but his return was looked for with intense anxiety on the part of his domestics, when, after some hours' absence, the stupendous and magnificent battlement of the Chateau Metzingerstein were discovered cracking and rocking to their very foundation under the influence of a dense and livid mass of ungovernable fire. As the flames, when first seen, had already made so terrible a progress that all efforts to save any portion of the building were evidently futile, the astonished neighborhood stood idly around in silent and pathetic wonder. But a new and fearful object soon riveted the attention of the multitude and proved how much more intense is the excitement wrought in the feelings of a crowd by the contemplation of human agony than that brought about by the most appalling spectacles of inanimate matter. Up the long avenue of aged oaks which led from the forest to the main entrance of the Chateau Metzengerstein, a steed, bearing an unbonneted and disordered rider, was seen leaping with an impetuosity which outstripped the very demon of the tempest. The career of the horseman was indisputably, on his own part, uncontrollable. The agony of his countenance, the convulsive struggle of his frame, gave evidence of superhuman exertion. But no sound, save a solitary shriek, escaped from his lacerated lips, which were bitten through and through in the intensity of terror. One instant, and the clattering of hooves resounded sharply and shrilly above the roaring of the flames and the shrieking of the winds. Another, and clearing at a single plunge the gateway and the moat, the steed bounded far up the tottering staircases of the palace and, with its rider, disappeared amid the whirlwind of chaotic fire. The fury of the tempest immediately died away, and a dead calm sullenly succeeded. A white flame still enveloped the building like a shroud, and, streaming far away into the quiet atmosphere, shot forth a glare of preternatural light, while a cloud of smoke settled heavily over the battlements in a distinct colossal figure of a horse. End of section 4